Welcome to Volume 2 of Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit. Chapter 3 It's just occurred to me, thinking back, then that passage where I gave a brief pen portrait of her, fairly near the start of this narrative, if you remember, I may have made a bloomer and left you with a wrong impression of Florence Cray, informed that she was an intellectual girl who wrote novels and was like ham and eggs with the boys with the bulging foreheads out Bloomsbury's way, it is possible that you might conjure in your mind's eye the picture of something short and dumpy with ink spots on the chin as worn by so many of the female intelligentsia. Such is far from being the truth. She's tall and willowy and handsome, with a terrific profile and luxuriant platinum blonde hair, and might, so far as looks are concerned, be the star unit of the harem of one of the better class of sultans. I've known strong men to be bowled over by her at first sight, and it's seldom that she takes her walks abroad without being whistled at by visiting Americans. She came breezing in, dressed to the nines. Stilton received her with a cold eye on his wristwatch. So, there you are at last. He said churlishly. About time, dash it. I suppose you had forgotten that Uncle Joe has a nervous breakdown if he's kept waiting for his soup. I was expecting some haughty response to this crack, for I knew her to be a girl of spirit. But she ignored the rebuke, and I saw that her eyes, which were bright and hazel in colour, were resting on me with a strange light in them. I don't know if you've ever seen a female of what they call teenage years gazing raptly at Humphrey Bogart in a cinema, but her deportment was much more along those lines. More than a touch of the soul's awakening, if I make my meaning clear. Bertie, she yipped, shaking from stem to stern. The moustache, it's lovely. Why have you kept this from us all these years? It's wonderful. It gives you such a dashing look. It alters your whole appearance. Well, after the bad press the old fungus had been getting of late, you might have thought that a rave notice like this would have been right up my street. I mean, while one lives for one's art, so to speak, and cares little for the public's praise or blame and all that sort of thing, one can always do with something to paste into one's scrapbook, can one not? But it left me cold, particularly in the vicinity of the feet. I found my eyes swivelling round to Stilton to see how he was taking it, and was concerned to note that he was taking it extremely big. Peak, that's the word I was trying to think of. He was definitely looking peaked, like a diner in a restaurant who has bitten into a bad oyster. And I wasn't sure I altogether blamed him, for his loved one had not only patted my cheek with an affectionate hand, but was drinking me in with such wide-eyed admiration that any fiancé witnessing the spectacle might well have been excused for growing a bit hot under the collar. And Stilton, of course, as I have already indicated, was a chap who could give Othello a couple of bisques and be dormy one at the 18th. It seemed to me that unless prompt steps were taken through the proper channels, raw passions might be unchained, so I hastened to change the subject. Tell me all about your uncle, Stilton, I said. Fond of soup, is he? Quite a boy for the bullion, yes? He merely gave a grunt like a pig, dissatisfied with his ration for the day, so I changed the subject again. How is Spindrift going? I asked Florence. Still selling copiously? I said the right thing. She beamed. Yes, it's doing splendidly. It's just gone into another edition. That's good. 
You knew it had been made into a play? Eh? Oh, yes, I heard about that. Do you know Percy Gorringe? I winced a trifle, proposing as I did to expunge the joy from Percy's life by giving him the uncompromising miss in bulk before tomorrow's sun had set. I would have preferred to keep him out of the conversation. I said the name seemed somehow familiar, as if I'd heard it somewhere in some connection. He did the dramatization. He has made a splendid job of it. Here Stilton, who appeared to be allergic to Goringes, snorted in his uncouth way. There are two things I particularly dislike about G. Darcy Cheesewright. One, his habit of saying ho. The other, his tendency when moved to make a sound like a buffalo pulling its foot out of a swamp. We have a manager who's going to put it on, and he's got the cast and all that. But there has been an unfortunate hitch. You don't say? Yes, one of the backers has failed us, and we need another thousand pounds. Still, it's going to be all right. Percy assures me he can raise the money. Again I winced, and once more Stilton snorted. It's always difficult to waste snorts in balance, but I think this second one had it over the first in offensiveness by a small margin. That louse. He said. He couldn't raise tuppence. These, of course, were fighting words. Florence's eyes flashed. I won't have you calling Percy a louse. He's very attractive and very clever. Who says so? I say so. Ho! Said Stilton. Attractive, eh? Who does he attract? Never mind who he attracts. Name three people he ever attracted. And clever. He may have just about enough intelligence to open his mouth when he wants to eat, but no more. He's a half-witted gargoyle. He is not a gargoyle. Of course he's a gargoyle. Are you going to look at me in the face and deny that he wears short side whiskers? Why shouldn't he wear short side whiskers? I suppose he has to, being a louse. Let me tell you. Oh, come on. Said Stilton brusquely and hustled her out. As they wended their way, he was reminding her once more of his Uncle Joseph's reluctance to be kept waiting for his soup. It was a pensive Bertram Worcester with more than a few furrows in his forehead who returned to his chair and put a match to his cigarette. And I'll tell you why I was pensive and furrowed. The recent slab of dialogue between the young couple had left me extremely uneasy. Love is a delicate plant that needs constant tending and nurturing. This cannot be done by snorting at the adored object like a gas explosion and calling her friends lice. I had the disquieting impression that it wouldn't take too much to make this Stilton Florence axis go pfft again. And who could say that in this event, the latter back in circulation would not decide to hitch on me once more? I remembered what had happened that other time, and as the fellow said, the burned child fears the spilled milk. You see, the trouble with Florence was that, though as I stated, she is indubitably comely and well-equipped to take office as a pin-up girl, she was, as I have also stressed, intellectual to the core, and the ordinary bloke, like myself, does well to give this type of female as wide a miss as he could manage. You know how it is with these earnest, brainy beezles of what is called strong character. They can't let the male soul alone. They want to get behind it and start shoving. Scarcely have they shaken the rice from their hair in the car driving off for the honeymoon then they pull up their socks and begin moulding the partner of joys and sorrows. And if there is one thing that gives me the pip, it's being moulded. 
Despite adverse criticism from many quarters, the name of my Aunt Agatha is the one that springs to the lips. I like B. Worcester the way he is. Lay off him, I say. Don't try to change him or you may lose the flavour. Even when we were merely affianced, I recalled this woman had dashed the mystery thriller from my hand, instructing me to read instead a perfectly frightful thing by a bird called Tolstoy. At the thought of what horrors might ensue after the clergyman had done his stuff, and she had a legal right to bring my grey hairs in sorrow to the grave, the imagination boggled. It was a subdued and apprehensive Bertram Wooster, who some moments later reached for the hat and light overcoat and went off to the Savoy to shove food into the trotters. The binge, as I had anticipated, did little or nothing to raise the spirits, and Dahlia had not erred in stating that my guests would prove to be creeps of no common order. L.G. Trotter was a little man with a face like a weasel, who scarcely uttered during the meal because, whenever he tried to, the moon of his delight shut him up, and Mrs. Trotter was a burly heavyweight with a beaked nose who talked all the time, principally about some women she disliked named Blenkinsop, and nothing to help me through the grim proceedings except the faint far-off echo of those specials of Jeeves. It was a profound relief when they finally called it a day and I was at liberty to totter off to the drones for the restorative I so sorely needed. The almost universal practice of the inmates being to attend some form of musical entertainment after dinner the smoking room was empty when I arrived, and it would be too much to say that five minutes later, a cigarette between my lips and a brimming flagon at my side, I was enveloped in deep peace. The strained nerves had relaxed. The snooted soul was at rest. It couldn't last, of course. These lulls in life's battle never do. There came a moment when I had that eerie feeling that I was not alone, and looking round found myself gazing at G. Darcy Cheeseride. Chapter 4 This Cheeseride, I should perhaps have mentioned earlier, is a bimbo who from the cradle up has devoted himself sedulously to aquatic exercise. He was captain of boats at Eton. He rode four years at Oxford. He sneaks off each summer at the time of the Henley Regatta and sweats lustily with his shipmates on behalf of the Leander Club. And if he ever goes to New York, I have no doubt he will squander a fortune sculling about the lake in Central Park at twenty-five cents a throw. It's only rarely that the ore is out of his hand. Well, you can't do that sort of thing without developing the thews and sinews, and all this galley slave stuff has left him extraordinarily robust. His chest is broad and barrel-like, and the muscles of his brawny arms strong as iron bands. I remember Jeeves once speaking of someone of his acquaintance whose strength was as the strength of ten, and the description would have fit Stilton nicely. He looked like an all-in wrestler. Being a pretty broad-minded chap and realising that it takes all sorts to make a world, I had always till now regarded this beefiness of his with kindly toleration. The way I took it is this. If blighters want to be beefy, let them be beefy. Good luck to them, I say. What I did not like at the moment of going to press was the fact that in addition to bulging in all directions with muscle, he was glaring at me in a sinister manner, his air that of one of those fiends with hatchet who are always going about the place slaying six. He was plainly much stirred about something, and it would not be going too far to say that as I caught his eye, I wilted where I sat. 
thinking that it must be the circumstance of his having found me restoring the tissues with a spot of the right stuff that was causing his chagrin, I was about to say that the elixir in my hand was purely medicinal and had been recommended by a prominent Harley Street physician when he spoke. If only I could make up my mind. About what, Stilton? About whether to break your foul neck or not. I did a bit more wilting. It seemed to me that I was alone in a deserted smoking room with a homicidal loony. It is a type of loony I particularly bar, and the homicidal loony I like least is the one with a forty-four chest and biceps in proportion. His fingers, I noticed, were twitching. Always a bad sign. Oh, for the wings of a dove about summed up my feelings as I tried not to look at them. Break my foul neck, I said, hoping for further information. Why? You don't know? I haven't the foggiest. Ho! He paused at this point to dislodge a fly which had sauntered in through the open window and become mixed up with his vocal cords. Having achieved his object, he resumed. Worcester. Still here, old man. Worcester, said Stilton, and if he wasn't grinding his teeth, I don't know a ground tooth when I see one. What was the thought behind that moustache of yours? Why did you grow it? Well, rather difficult to say, of course. One gets these whims. I scratched the chin a moment. I suppose I felt it might brighten things up, I hazarded. Or had you an ulterior motive? Was it part of a subtle plot? for stealing Florence from me. My dear Stilton! It all looks very fishy to me. Do you know what happened just now, when we left my uncle's? I'm sorry, no. I'm a stranger in these parts myself. He ground a few more teeth. I will tell you. I saw Florence home in a cab, and all the way there she was raving about that foul moustache of yours. It made me sick to listen to her. I had the idea of saying something to the effect that girls will be girls and must be expected to have their simple enthusiasms, but decided better not. When we got off at her door, and I turned after paying the driver, I found she was looking at me intently, examining me from every angle, her eyes fixed on my face. You enjoyed that, of course. Shut up. Don't interrupt me. Right ho! I only meant it must have been pretty gratifying. He brooded for a space. Whatever had happened at that lover's get-together, one could see that the memory of it was stirring him like a dose of salts. A moment later, he said and paused, wrestling with his feelings. A moment later, he went on finding speech again. She announced that she wished me to grow a moustache too. She said, I quote her words, when a man has a large pink face and a head like a pumpkin, a little something around the upper lip often does wonders in the way of easing the strain. Would you say my head was like a pumpkin, Worcester? Not a bit, old man. Not like a pumpkin? No, no not like a pumpkin. A touch of the dome of St. Paul's, perhaps? Well... That is what she compared it to. She said that if I split it in the middle with a spot of hair, the relief to pedestrians and traffic would be enormous. She's crazy. I wore a moustache my last year at Oxford. It looked frightful. Nearly as loathsome as yours. Moustache forsooth. 
said Stilton, which surprised me, for I hadn't supposed he knew words like forsooth. I wouldn't grow a mustache to please a dying grandfather, I told her. A nice fool I'd look with a mustache, I said. It's how you look without one, she said. Is that so, I said. Yes, it is, she said. Oh, I said. Yes, she said. Ho, I said, and she said, ho to you. If she had added with knobs on, it would, of course, have made it stronger, but I must say I was rather impressed by Florence's work as described in this slice of dialogue. It seemed to me rather snappy and forceful. I suppose girls learn this sort of cut-and-thrust stuff at their finishing schools. And Florence, one must remember, had been moving a good deal of late in bohemian circles. Chelsea Studios and the rooms of the Intelligentsia in Bloomsbury and places like that, where the repartee is always of the high order. So that was that, proceeded Stilton, having brooded for a space. One thing led to another, hot words passed to and fro, and it was not long before she was returning the ring and saying she would be glad to have her letters back at my earliest convenience. I tut-tutted. He asked me rather abruptly not to tut-tut, so I stopped tut-tutting, explaining that my reason for having done so was that this tragic tale had moved me deeply. My heart aches for you, I said. It does, does it? Profusely. Ho! You doubt my sympathy? You bet I doubt your ruddy sympathy. I told you just now that I was trying to make up my mind, and what I'm trying to make it up about is this. Had you foreseen that this would happen? Did your cunning fiend's brain spot what was bound to occur if you grew a mustache and flashed it on Florence? I tried to laugh lightly, but you know how it is with these light laughs. They don't always come out just the way you would wish. Even to me it sounded more like a gargle. Am I right? Was that the thought that came into your cunning fiend's brain? Certainly not. As a matter of fact, I haven't got a cunning fiend's brain. Yes, but Jeeves has. The plot could have been his. Was it Jeeves who wove this snare for my feet? My dear chap, Jeeves doesn't weave snares for feet. He would consider it a liberty. Besides, I told you, he's the spearhead of the movement which disapproves of my mustache. I see what you mean. Yes, on second thought, I'm inclined to acquit Jeeves of complicity. The evidence points to your having thought up the scheme yourself. Evidence? How do you mean evidence? When we were at your flat, and I said I was expecting Florence, I noticed a very significant thing. Your face lit up. It did not! Pardon me, I know when a face lights up, and when it doesn't, I could read you like a book. You were saying to yourself, this is the moment, this is where I spring it on her. Nothing of the sort, if my face lit up, which I gravely doubt, it was merely because I reasoned that as soon as she arrived, you'd be leaving. You wanted me to leave? I did! You were taking up space, which I required for other purposes. It was plausible, of course, and I could see it shook him. He passed a ham-like hand, gnarled with toiling at the oar, across his brow. Well, I shall have to think it over. Yes, yes, I shall have to think it over. Go away and start now, is what I would suggest. I will. I shall be scrupulously fair. I shall weigh this and that. But if I find my suspicions correct, I shall know what to do about it. 
and with these ominous words he withdrew, leaving me not a little bowed down with the weight of woe. For apart from the fact that when a bird of Stilton's impulsive temperament gets it into his nut that you've woven snares for his feet, practically anything can happen in the way of violence and mayhem. It gave me goose pimples to think of Florence being at large once more. It was with heavy heart I finished my whiskey and splash and tottered home. Worcester a voice seemed to be whispering in my ear, things are getting hot, old sport. Jeeves was at the telephone when I reached the sitting room. I am sorry. He was saying, and I noticed that he was just as suave and firm as I had been in our recent get-together. No, please, further discussion is useless. I'm afraid you must accept my decision as final. Good night. From the fact that he had not chucked in a lot of sirs, I presumed he'd been talking to some pale of his. Though from the curtness of his tone, probably not one of those whose strength was a strength of ten. What was that, Jeeves? I asked. A little tiff with one of the boys at the club? No, sir. I was speaking to Mr. Percy Goringe, who rang up shortly before you entered. Affecting to be yourself, I informed him that his request for a thousand pounds could not be entertained. I thought this might spare you discomfort and embarrassment. I must say I was touched. After being worsted in that clash of wheels of ours, one might have expected him to show dudgeon and be loath to do the feudal thing by the young master. But Jeeves and I, though we may have our differences, as it might be on the subject of lip joy, do not allow them to rankle. Thank you, Jeeves. Not at all, sir. Lucky you came back in time to do the needful. Did you enjoy yourself at the club? Very much, sir. More than I did mine. Sir? I ran into Stilton Cheese right there and found him in a difficult mood. Tell me, Jeeves, what do you do with this junior Ganymede of yours? Well, sir, many of the members play a sound game of bridge. The conversation, too, is always of a high order. And should one desire more frivolous entertainment, there is the club book. Oh, yes, I remember. Perhaps you do, too. If you happen to be around when I was relating the doings at Totley Towers, the country seat of Sir Watkin Bassett, when this club book had enabled me to put it so crushingly across the powers of darkness in the shape of Roderick Spode. Under Rule 11 of the Junior Ganymede, you may recall, members are required to supply intimate details concerning their employers for inclusion in the volume, and its pages reveal that Spode, who was an amateur dictator of sorts, ran a gang called the Black Shorts, who went around in blackfooter bags, shouting Heil Spode! Also, secretly designed ladies' underclothing under the trade name of Eulalie Soares. Armed with this knowledge, I had had, of course, little difficulty in reducing him to the level of a third-class power. These dictators don't want a thing like that to get spread about. But though the club book had served me well on that occasion, I was far from approving of it. Mine has been in many ways a checkered career, and it was not pleasant to think that full details of episodes I would prefer to be buried in oblivion were giving a big laugh daily to a bunch of valets and butlers. You couldn't tear the Worcester material out of that club book, could you, Jeeves? I fear not, sir. It contains matter that can fairly be described as dynamite. Very true, sir. Suppose the contents were rooted about and reached the ears of my Aunt Agatha. You have no concern on that point, sir. Each member fully understands that perfect discretion is a sine qua non. All the same, I'd feel happier if that page 
Eleven pages, sir. If those eleven pages were consigned to the flames! A sudden thought struck me. Is there anything about Stilton Cheese right in the book? A certain amount, sir. Damaging? Not in any real sense of the word, sir. His personal attendant merely reports that he has a habit, when moved, of saying ho, and does Swedish exercises in the nude each morning before breakfast. I sighed. I hadn't really hoped, and yet it had been a disappointment. I have always held, rightly I think, that nothing eases the tension of a difficult situation like a well-spotted bit of blackmail, and it would have been agreeable to have been in a position to go to Stilton and say, Cheese right, I know your secret, and watch him wilt. But you can't fulfill yourself to any real extent in that direction if all the party of the second part does is say ho and tie himself into knots before sailing into the eggs and bee. It was plain that with Stilton there could be no such moral triumph as I had achieved in the case of Roderick's bode. Ah, well, I said resignedly, if that's that, that's that, what? So it would appear, sir. Nothing to do but keep the chin up and the upper lip as stiff as can be managed. I think I'll go to bed with an improving book. Have you read The Mystery of the Pink Crayfish by Rex West? No, sir. I have not enjoyed that experience. Oh, pardon me, sir. I was forgetting. Lady Florence Cray spoke to me on the telephone shortly before you came in. Her ladyship would be glad if you would bring her up. I will get the number, sir. I was puzzled. I could make nothing of this. No reason, of course, why she shouldn't want me to give her a buzz, but on the other hand, no reason I could see why she should. She didn't say what she wanted. No, sir. Ah, Jeeves. Yes, sir. One moment, milady. Here is Mr. Worcester. I took the instrument from him and hallowed. Bertie? On the spot. I hope you weren't in bed. No, no. I thought you wouldn't be, Bertie. Will you do something for me? I want you to take me to a nightclub tonight. What? A nightclub. Rather a low one. I mean, garish and all that sort of thing. It's for a book I'm writing. Atmosphere. Oh, ah, I said, enlightened. I knew all about this atmosphere thing. Bingo Little's wife, the well-known novelist, Rosie M. Banks, is as hot as a pistol on it. Bingo has often told me. She frequently sends him off to take notes of this and that, so that she shall have plenty of ammo for her next chapter. If you're a novelist, apparently, you have to get your atmosphere correct, or your public starts writing you stinkers, beginning with, Dear Madam, are you aware? So, you're doing something about a nightclub. Yes, I'm coming to the part where my hero goes to one, and I've never been to any except the respectable ones where everyone goes, which aren't the sort of thing I want. What I need is something more... Garish! Yes, garish. And you want to go tonight? It must be tonight, because I'm off tomorrow afternoon to Brinkley. Oh, you're going to stay with Aunt Dahlia? Yes. Well, can you manage it? Oh, rather, delighted! Good. Darcy Cheese Ride, said Florence, and I noted the steely what-do-you-call in her voice. Was to have taken me, but he finds himself unable to, so I've had to fall back upon you. This might, I thought, have been more tactfully put, but I let it go. Right ho, I said. I'll call for you at about half past eleven. You are surprised. You're saying to yourself, Come, come, Worcester, what's all this? Wondering why I was letting myself in for a beano from which I might well have shrunk. The matter is susceptible of a ready explanation. 
My quick mind, you see, had spotted instantly that this was where I might quite conceivably do myself a bit of good. Having mellowed this girl with food and drink, who knew but that I might succeed in effecting a reconciliation between her and that piece of cheese with whom, until tonight, she had been headed toward the altar rails, thus averting the peril which must always loom on the Worcester horizon while she remained unattached and at a loose end. It needed, I was convinced, only a few kindly words from a sympathetic man of the world, and these I was prepared to supply in full measure. Jeeves, I said, I shall be going out again. This will mean having to postpone finishing the mystery of the pink crayfish on a later date, but it can't be helped. As a matter of fact, I rather fancy I have already wrested its secret from it. Unless I am very much mistaken, the man who bumped off Sir Eustace Willoughby was the butler. Indeed, sir. That is what I think, having sifted the clues. All that stuff throwing suspicion on the vicar doesn't fool me for one instant. Will you ring up the modelled oyster and book a table in my name? Not too near the band, sir. How right you are, Jeeves. Not too near the band.